Hello and welcome to Maiden Mother Matriarch with me, Louise Perry. My guest today is Eliza Mondegreen. She's a graduate student who is interested in the study of gender identity, particularly online trans communities, which we spoke about a lot, particularly online trans communities that attract natal females. We uh, spoke about some of the parallels between this phenomenon and other psychiatric phenomena of the past, like um, multiple personality disorder. And then in the extended version of the episode, we also spoke about Eliza's undercover visits to um, conferences for clinicians and patients um, in terms of gender identity and some of her conclusions from seeing people uh, in the flesh in meat space, including some of the physical effects that transition um, is having on these patients and what kind of long-term consequences they might be. You can find that extended version of the episode at louiseperry.substack.com and as always you can also find their uh, bonus episodes and the MMM chat community. Enjoy. So Eliza, could you start by telling me a bit about your uh, academic background and and your interest in transgenderism and and I guess how you came to be interested in it as a subject? Sure. And I first just wanted to say I'm really happy to be here. I've been a big fan of your book and I've loved your podcast. So it's really a pleasure to talk to you. (laughs) Likewise. So my background, um, I'm a graduate student and I study kind of like the social context of mental health diagnoses, mental illness. Um, So I first became interested in the subject of gender about 10 years ago. And there were a few years where I knew that there was something going on. And I knew on some subconscious level that there was going to be a cost to looking into it. And so I avoided it. Mm. I sense that that's something that a lot of people have been doing over the last several years. (laughs) I certainly did. Yeah. Yeah. But there were several things that happened both in my personal and professional life that finally pushed me to really like, I was like, okay, I have to understand what's going on here. Something is very strange. And I, I went about it the way that I go about everything, which is I, you know, I went to the library and (laughs) moved in and read everything that I could think of. And then everything that would be, you know, referenced that would pique my interest about, you know, the history of medicine and psychiatry um the history of you know gender and sexual orientation and the field of sexology which is really wild Mm. um and at the same time i was hoping to go back to graduate school and i kept telling myself okay you know take this time you're in the library of congress you know every weekend working away like just prepare a research idea and you can do anything you want except gender Mm. because i didn't think that anybody would be willing to take on that kind of a like lightning rod in their department. Um, But every weekend I would go in and I would read about gender and I would write about gender. And I ultimately accepted that I just, I couldn't avoid it. So when I came to graduate school in a program where I study, you know, the social and cultural context of mental illness, um, I, I really wanted to focus on online trans communities and the way that they shape the beliefs and expectations and intentions that young people have around transition, particularly that young women have around transition. And I also wanted to study kind of the basis and the points of difference between exploratory and affirmative approaches to working with gender dysphoric youth. So that's kind of how I got where I am. (laughs) And what has it, what was the response like? So you said that this was 10 years ago that you first became interested my memory of that time is that it was super not allowed (laughs) oh no I mean so I've I've only gone to graduate school quite recently I'm in my second year Mm -hmm. um but 10 years ago I mean the first time that I ran into this personally like I was working for a women's rights organization Mm -hmm. And that was the first time that I realized that there were certain things that you were no longer allowed to say without being called a word that I had never heard before, which was a turf. Mm. Um, And there was a long period of time where, you know, I didn't even go home and Google it. I just 
I had no idea what it meant. And I had no idea that there was anybody else who had any reservation. It just sounds bad there, doesn't it? It does sound bad. <laughs> it does. It's not. Yes, I think, I mean, I think now it's been somewhat reclaimed, but definitely 10 years ago, it was not said with a smile. No, it was not. Um, no, you can tell it was something that you weren't, it was not a compliment. Um, mm. Even though now I feel like I have a lot of affectionate associations with it. Like I would love to go back and visit Turf Island again sometime soon. <laughs> yeah. It's actually a beautiful day on rainy fascist Turf Island. Anyway, um, um, so you're interested in the um, looking at transgenderism from a from a from a sort of psychiatric perspective. Is that is that a fair way of characterizing it? Yeah, psychiatric and also just like anthropological. I mean, am I right that it's still the case that gender identity disorder is in the DSM? So gender dysphoria is still in the DSM. There's a push okay. through the so there's the international classification of um, diagnoses, I think it's gender incongruence now there, and that's definitely the direction of travel, which is an interesting one. I mean, we can talk about it if you want to, or we can move on. No, let's. I think that's really interesting because it's it, it, a lot of activists end up in this tricky bind where, on the one hand, they don't want to say that having gender identity um, dysphoria is uh, an illness per mm -hmm. se, because it's actually because it's an identity and it's just as valid as any other yada yada. But particularly in America, they also need to um, persuade insurers to pay for mm -hmm. often very expensive medical treatment. And so the only way of getting around that is to say that it's a medical disorder, which is quite um, quite an interesting predicament. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a pretty tangled knot. Um, yeah, so there is, there's been this interesting evolution in the diagnosis over time. So until, you know, until the early 2000s, mid 2000s, it was gender identity disorder. And so the focus is on, you know, this is a disorder related to identity. Um, then the focus becomes gender dysphoria. Dysphoria just means, you know, discontent, unhappiness with something. Mm -hmm. um, and the push now is toward this gender incongruence, this sense that your body does not match your inner sense of sense of self, whatever that means. And nobody really is very quick to clarify what that means. And I think the reason that we've seen these evolutions, identity disorder was too on the nose. And so like, why would you, why would you help a patient to fix an identity disorder by drugging and operating on the body? It doesn't make sense. Mm. So the basis for treatment kind of required a shift in the diagnosis. Gender dysphoria, the problems are a little bit more subtle. And I think a big one is <laughs> clinicians in this area of medicine have been writing some very big checks that they really hope to cash when it comes to, oh, you know, these treatments in time, you know, we, we've proven right that this was the right thing to do to intervene on the body to treat this kind of distress. And the problem is that as the evidence starts to come in, it's not great when it comes to, you know, okay, puberty blocking, was this a good idea? Hormones, and hormonal and surgical transition, has this really helped patients in the long term? And so as that evidence fails to come in and is in fact evidence of medical harm and regret and detransition mount, the focus needs to shift again. And gender incongruence, I think it has two main selling points. One of them is, you know, what I'm, what I'm talking about here, which is if you treat someone's gender incongruence, you don't have the expectation that it is going to improve their life. With gender dysphoria, the expectation really should be that if you treat someone for this, other areas of their life should get better. Incongruence doesn't make those promises. The other thing about gender incongruence is it's very convenient from, I mean, it's kind of endlessly expandable mm. in terms of like, what does it open up in terms of medical frontiers? Maybe you or I could have gender incongruence too, even though I think we're both pretty happy to be women. Um, but, you know, you could always be, you know, a different kind of woman. You could be, oh, you know, you, when you read the literature on like women who seek, you know, plastic surgery, cosmetic surgery for, you mm. know, breast reduction, breast enhancement, all of these other things, they're always talking about, well, I always really felt like a big busted woman or I always felt like a flat chested woman. Gender incongruence could fall under all of those too. And the other thing that gender incongruence does is that it doesn't promise that clinicians are working on something that is fixed. 
So it, it allows a patient's desires for interventions to change over time, including to change in the direction of regret and feeling like they have been harmed. And it mm -hmm. lets clinicians off the hook because it says, well, we treated your sense of gender incongruence. You want, you, you know, you didn't want breasts. And so we gave you a mastectomy. And so it was success, the success, even if the rest of your life didn't get better. And even if you regretted it later, and now you just have a new form of gender incongruence that we can also treat. I was like, well, you made your request. We fulfilled it. Off you go. Yes. It's a very like a service provider model yeah, and yeah. not a medical assessment model. Yeah. Which also is in keeping with, I mean, I've always sort of suspected that this, um, whole domain of medicine could only really come out of the states because of the mm -hmm. particular model of um privatized healthcare that it is there are incentives in place to mm -hmm. you know you don't need to be a rabid conspiracy conspiracist to think that there are clearly incentives in place to encourage people to get more treatment not less mm -hmm. which don't exist in a socialized healthcare model like in the uk despite all the all the other um flaws of such a model and so, yes, yeah, I mean, it's a point that's been made um, um, many times by, you know, lesbian radical feminists about the whole idea of mismatch between, mm -hmm. all, all, incongruence is a great word, right? Like <laughs> any, any sense of um, dissatisfaction with one's gender experience, you know, a million butch lesbians will say, I mean, yeah. Yeah. Or every single teenage girl who's ever lived. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, that, that's, that's kind of built in. Yeah. Well, I mean, the radical feminist critique would say, would say that's a result of patriarchy that women feel mm -hmm. that sense of distress in relation to gender. Um, I mean, there are other ways of explaining it too, but it certainly mm -hmm. seems like you've got a lot of ready-made patients if that's what you're setting out to treat medically. Yeah, and this is part of feeling like one of the reasons why transgender medicine has so much power behind it is that it is like, it is opening an enormous market of which we could all theoretically be part if it's like, if the idea of what medicine does is that medicine is to help people self-actualize their identities and, you know, meet their embodiment goals. Anybody can have an embodiment goal. Mm. Anybody can have an identity that they want to self-actualize and feel like it's imperfectly represented by a body that is not what you would have chosen or a body that's aging or, you know, all of these things. I think it's, it's this boundless frontier in medicine that it, that we're seeing which is why of course barry harrington is just just sees this under the banner of transhumanism yes um in the sense of being not about fixing pathology but um enhancing normality yeah it seems to be a really perfect example of that in action i mean i suppose what defenders of um the sort of mainstream position on transgenderism would say is that you know you do often have people who are profoundly distressed mm -hmm. and there are high suicide rates and all of this stuff associated with people who seek out um treatment for gender incongruence but of course i mean i mean one way of explaining that is that actually what we're seeing is the clustering of different psychiatric conditions mm -hmm. of this of which this can be considered one and there's an enormous amount of sort of comorbidity mm -hmm. um do you want to talk more about that you must have well is that something that you can say in academia so the first question <laughs> i'm not too worried about what i can say and can't say in academia um i i think that you're absolutely right that the clustering of comorbidities is a huge factor and that the kinds of distress and the kind of um, even when we see things like suicidal ideation, which is or suicide attempts, which are still rare, that they are on par with what we would see with other populations with severe psychiatric issues. It's not, you know, some exception to what we know about human distress. It's like it's the new idiom and a very compelling one for people who feel distressed for all kinds of different reasons and for whom the idea of being in the wrong body or the possibility of, you know, reinvention that transition presents are very appealing. 
it's not hard to imagine why. And I think the other thing that's mm -hmm. important to say about that is that transgender community dynamics, and I think gender affirming care itself are themselves actively distressing mm. and make life like they exacerbate the distress that people are already feeling by, you know, in online trans communities, you have people who are engaging in negative co-rumination 24 hours a day. And these people are sharing, you know, they're sharing their, their deepest insecurities and they're really dredging, you know, the, the worst kind of aspects of their experience of life and sharing it with other people. And they're constantly seeding everyone else in the community with new ideas of ways to be distressed and unhappy with your body and to second guess every social interaction that you have. Um, they also set people up with expectations for their loved ones and even for perfect strangers who they meet on the street in terms of how this person will be seen, how they'll be interacted with that are just impossible for other people mm -hmm. to meet and then devastating when not met. And I think with gender affirming care, I mean, the clinicians, because they're trying so hard to push the idea that if you change the body, you can address the distress, but the fact that you can never completely change the body, you can never change sex, you can never reach the end point. They are putting patients on this impossible quest. And you know, there's just, there's no end. And I, I think a lot of people who detransition, it's because they've come to that realization that there is no end in sight and there's no end possible. But for people who are still on it, that's very difficult because it's like, well, the next thing will always help. Yeah. And there have long been um, studies showing, you know, that things like women who've had boob jobs are more, are more likely to commit suicide than yeah. women who want boob jobs and things like that. Because actually, exactly as you describe, you have this horrible, if only I do this, then everything will mm -hmm. get better. And then it doesn't, inevitably. Um there's a great line on this by Andrea Long Chu, um, <laughs> who is completely bananas, but I will go to the grave <laughs> insisting that Andrea Long Chu is actually a great writer. Like, Females is actually a really good book, despite being um, weird and misogynist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, Chu has a line that's something like, um, being trans means that you're constantly kind of dependent on the kindness of strangers. Yes, I remember that. Yeah, in the sense that, um you people kind of people have to play along yes because actually it's very rare for people to completely pass you might pass in some photos and so on mm -hmm. but you're unlikely to pass in real life because actually the human brain is really really good at spotting like signs of biological sex um and so what you basically require in order to maintain equilibrium according to the, the sort of standard view is that everyone is kind to you everyone you yeah. meet for the rest of your life is kind to you and plays along and inevitably some people are not going to do that and sometimes it might just be children or something you know who right might, or it's who, not who unkindness know. it's just yes or, just don't know. Or, 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 i don't know elderly people with dementia or something people who through no malice yeah um don't play along and then it's utterly devastating yeah if that's what your your whole sort of self-esteem is resting on yeah and in these online trans communities one of the most common themes that i've noticed is people will say, did you notice that after you realized that you were transgender, that like your gender dysphoria got way worse and everything in your life got worse and all of your interactions hurt more. And it's like, please think about that. <laughs> like mm. there's been this incredible, it's a process of like sensitization that makes it almost impossible for people to just live in the world. Mm. It makes everything so painful because you are trying to turn something that is impossible, that is a fantasy or a delusion into a reality. And like you said, like you require the entire world to play along and to play along pretty convincingly. Like a lot of the discussions in these communities will be like, you know, everybody uses my pronouns, but I feel like they don't really mean it. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's profoundly destabilizing as a belief system. I'm sure as well, sometimes there's, um, 
you know, some people, are, uh, there are obviously a, a, a million motivations that people might have to um, go through this transition process. Mm-hmm. And many people will be coming at it from uh, from a place of profound distress. Um, you know, and or in some cases, there's a, there, I think there are efforts to control people. Mm-hmm. Like the, you know, the classic thing of, of, of not actually changing your appearance at all, but then insisting <laughs> in, in some like progressive social circles, insisting on, on different pronouns and different name, even when you're not there. And have you ever noticed when you, when you're, you're in conversation with, um, if you're, if you're in a kind of progressive milieu and you're talking about someone who's trans or non-binary, who isn't mm-hmm. there, and everyone is being so careful to use the right words. And it means that every time you speak about or to that person, you're having to kind of second guess yourself and it induces mm-hmm. a sense of sort of um, almost fear mm-hmm. or certainly a sense of disquiet. And I can't help but suspect that sometimes in a slightly adolescent way, you know, not necessarily a psychopathic way, possibly just a teenagerish way, there's, there's like that is part of the point. It's about yes. wanting... It's about wanting everyone to have to pay attention to you. Yeah, it's hard to avoid that conclusion in some cases. So tell me more about your research into um, online trans communities. Am I right that that's that's been your focus lately? Yeah, that's been my focus. So I wanted to study online communities that like adolescent and young adult females use. Um, So the places Mm. where they question gender Uh, where they adopt this kind of radical new set of beliefs about sex and gender, and then they kind of set their intentions for transition and report back on how it's going. And I think one of the things that is so interesting about these communities is how female they are. It's ironic. Mm -hmm. Um, This is something that I, you know, I started noticing a while ago. It was like the the women who are part of online trans communities are much more stereotypically feminine in the way that they, for example, express themselves in the kinds of reassurance seeking that they engage in in these communities than a lot of the women who call themselves, you know, sex realist or gender critical. Mm. It's a little ironic. Um, But these communities are basically these sources of kind of pathological support And so, you know, we talked a little bit about the co-rumination that goes on where these women will share, you know, what are the, oh, what are the like silliest sources of like gender dysphoria for you? And it will sincerely be things like there was this meme going around and I realized that I don't think about the Roman Empire as much as men men do. I saw that. Yeah, yeah. I saw someone sharing that. It was me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, amazing. As I commented on this meme, I think about the Roman Empire a lot, so I don't know about my my, my gender identity. It does throw things into doubt, doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Although, as I said, I, I on Twitter, I think about the fall of the Roman Empire all the time. Maybe, like, <laughs> maybe, maybe that's not what you're saying. Maybe that's for the female. female. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I think I think you might be okay. Yeah. So you don't have to go off into the woods. Um, yeah. yeah. So it'll be like, you know, the shape of your head or, how, you know, this obsession over fashion, clothing, how your body appears, the obsession over your breasts and your hips. Like these are the kinds of things that if you look at, you know, communities online that are based around weight or style or things like that, they sound very similar to online Mm -hmm. female trans communities. Um, Mm. But the main thing that I've been interested in is how these communities handle a very touchy subject, which is doubt, which is completely ubiquitous in online trans communities and it's also because it is such a sensitive subject it's very carefully packaged i would say Mm. um and so people will come into these communities they will express the most serious and pervasive doubts like they will come in and say things like i've been transitioning for seven years and i've had like this is a real post that i that i read recently been transitioning for seven years and i've had you know, top surgery and I had a hysterectomy and I've been taking testosterone and I I totally pass all the time. Who knows if that's true. But I also like, I just, I feel doubt all the time that like, am I really a man? And you, 
you just have this these pervasive doubts at every single stage of questioning before transition, during transition, before every single step in transition, where women will say, I'm, you know, I think that I'm, I feel like I'm faking it, or I feel like an imposter, or whatever it is, mm. or I feel like I'll regret it, or <laughs> all of these things. And the way that they'll talk about it is interesting because they'll say, they'll express these incredibly serious doubts, and then they'll say, but this is just my internalized transphobia talking or my imposter syndrome is flaring up again. Mm. And it's like a way of, it's like you're allowed to express your doubts if you then completely disown them before the end of the post so mm. that they're not too mm. threatening to other people. And then the post is a way of asking other people to help you to manage your cognitive dissonance, which is always best managed in groups who have the same problem. And what's the replies tend to be to that style of post? I mean, the replies tend to be, oh, you know, I know exactly how you feel, or I, you know, I have always felt that way, or I still feel that way. And it's really good to know that other guys feel that way. And it's just internalized transphobia. You just have to keep working through it. And maybe you'll feel better after the next intervention. Just keep going. It's always encouragement. And it's never, even when someone is very clear, and this is often the case, They'll say things like, my transition has been like the best thing that's ever happened to me and everything in my life has gotten worse after transition. And those things just can't be true. Mm -hmm. um, and so and even in cases where women are reporting really serious psychiatric or physical side effects to taking testosterone, for example, nobody is ever like, you know, maybe this isn't the right thing for you. Maybe this isn't... <laughs> You know, maybe you should either reconsider the intervention or reconsider the identity. Like, that just never happens. Yes, which does rather suggest, doesn't it, that, you know, if it were, I don't know. I mean, the comparison that they like to make is with being gay or lesbian. Yes. To see this as, these as, as, as um, basically identical or politically identical, um, even though being trans requires medical intervention in a way that being gay and lesbian doesn't defining being gay is quite like straightforward yes <laughs> you're either attracted to people of your own sex or not right I mean we might debate whether you need to actually have sex with someone of the same sex to sort of count but certainly mm -hmm. having sexual desire is like fairly uh clear-cut right yeah um whereas it seems here as if it's actually very very fuzzy yeah really there aren't really set criteria for what makes one count as trans, given that it sounds as if sort of normal female adolescent emotion can easily come under that banner. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that that slipperiness or that kind of quicksand quality to what it means to be trans is what people get so stuck in. Because, you know, people, women will come into these communities and express doubts about identity or say, you know, when I'm interacting with, you know, other men, it makes me not feel like a man or I feel like I don't understand mm. them or I feel like we're not having the same experience. Um, and they will be told, well, you know, whatever a man is, whatever it means to you. Mm. Like we can't, I can't imagine this kind of definite, like imagine you're trying to raise a small child and every time they ask what something is, you're like, well, it's whatever it means to you. Mm. You're very destabilizing. Yeah. It's very interesting. I hadn't really thought about this, that, um, yeah, I mean, it's 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 my kind of hypo well, it's maybe it's the reactionary feminist hypothesis <laughs> that um, the differences between men and women are actually deep seated and important, mm -hmm. even though there are anomalous cases, of course. And that would suggest, yes, that actually, um, I mean, particularly a teenage girl who actually probably isn't especially masculine, mm -hmm. who probably is just sort of just anxious and has other problems in her life, which are motivating her to want to transition, she probably would actually find suddenly being launched into male-only social spaces yeah. strange. Because actually the way that men relate to one another in sort of homosocially is quite different from the way that women relate to one another homosocially. But it's sort of invisible unless yeah. you either read a lot of, um, like, reactionary feminist diatribes. <laughs> Or listen to, I always find it really interesting listening to male-only podcasts. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously they are um, playing to an audience because it's not actually private. But, you know, the amount that men will, like, interrupt one another 
and be quite sort of I call it the sort of dicks on tables <laughs> relating <laughs> you know it's that's like that's like normal that's like normal homosocial interaction yeah you know? whereas often women when which is why I think when women often are sort of confronted with that kind of behavior say in the workplace they read it as hostile mm-hmm. um but anyway yes I mean I hadn't really thought about how that would be experienced by a young woman who who's identifying as trans but right it being very strange yeah like that's something that is you're putting your finger on something that's so fascinating about these communities and about the ways that young women come to identify as trans which is they come to identify as trans through related relating themselves to for example like fan fiction that is written by mm. other young women about like gay male sexuality which has nothing to do with <laughs> yes. actual gay male sexuality let's get onto that because that's so interesting yeah, yeah. and also <laughs> but, <go on. laughs> but also things like people will come into these communities and I think from my sense it also applies to you know the the communities that males who identify as trans come to you have people who are just kind of weird and kind of misfit and they have this experience of relating to connecting to belonging with other people for the first time in these online trans communities and they think that the basis of this relatedness is that they're all transgender Mm. but the actual basis it's very clear with these girls it's like the actual basis is that they are misfit girls and they're relating mm. on the basis of having a, you know, female experiences and reacting Actually, to those in a certain way. female experience. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Cause no one else can have that precise experience except another woman. Yes. And so they relate to one another and then they go out in the world and they interact with, you know, actual men and they feel this tremendous sense of doubt and mm. they don't fit in. And it's very, you know, it's very dissonant. It's very distressing. And then they come back and they're reassured by all of the other women who identify as men, that they're really men. It's interesting. Before we get onto the fan fiction thing, can I just ask, in terms of the sort of self-selection that goes on in these groups, mm-hmm. are they, say, so I'm guessing we're talking about things like subreddit, Tumblr. Yeah. Are they kind of advertised as being for natal females? Or do you think there's a sort of self-sorting that goes on where, where I mean, kind of on the basis of maybe them having a more feminine like vibe um they end up being all natal females um so the so my research focuses on reddit and i picked communities where of course they're not going to say like okay we're all natal females here but but it'll be based Mm. on like the identity category like fdm or trans masculine yeah that brings everybody together gotcha have you looked as well at more mixed yes subreddits yeah, I have. And I also, you know, I drop into the um, the male to female Reddit forums from time to time, and which is always a real trip. Um. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, for I can guess what you mean, but for anyone who, <laughs> what, what, what would you say are the most marked differences between the two? Uh, I think, so I think the major difference between the Reddit forum FTM, so for women, and the Reddit forum MTF for men, is how sexual, how explicit the MTF forum is. Yeah, that's what I that's what I would have yeah. guessed as well. And that there the MTF forum is like men running toward their idea of like this hypersexualized femininity. And that FTM forum is women running away from an often hypersexualized idea of femininity. Yes. And so that running from, running to, like that's one of the biggest differences is like the direction of travel and the main point of reassurance for young women in FTM and trans masculine communities is they'll be like, even if they say outright that they're not sure about their gender identity, they'll be like, but I know that I'm not a woman. Do they talk as well? Do they ever talk explicitly about this, this, this particular kind of sexualized image of being a woman? um, Yeah. That they dislike. They will talk about, I mean, every kind of female experience appears on these forums, understandably. Mm. Um, mm. And that can include things like ending up on the wrong end of a sexual interaction, um, mm. the real hatred of being objectified, the hatred of being just, yeah, this, this, I just don't want to be seen as a woman. I don't want people to think of me as a woman. Is there, did they talk about motherhood as well as something that they're running from? There's a lot of talk about um, pregnancy and motherhood as 
basically body horror. Mm. And the, the way that these women will talk about, you know, female reproductive systems, female reproductive parts, it's just absolutely objectifying. Um, they like they will use trigger warnings to talk when they're going to talk about, you know, a female reproductive part like a uterus in a post mm. so that people will know to avoid it because it's too distressing. And they will come up with all of these other names, some of which have made their way out into, I mean, the healthcare sector and, you know, normal people's lives about like, okay, well, don't call it a vagina, call it a front hole and don't call it breastfeeding, call mm. it chest feet. Like there's this, this attempt to distance from anything that sounds and reminds these women of being female. Mm. That certainly includes female sexuality and, and reproduction. Okay, let's talk about the the okay. role of uh, like of fan fiction. Yeah. Um, I this is it still right to call it slash slash fiction or, or slash? Try and yeah. yeah. Let's, let's try and get into the vocabulary. Yeah. Um. So this is not like a. This comes up a little bit, but since my research is kind of it's based around search terms like internalized transphobia and imposter syndrome. This isn't an area that I'm like an expert on, but there is a lot of talk about um, anime and fan fiction and fictional characters on TV and movies and books, and that these are the basis for women realizing that they were really men. Mm -hmm. um, and if, especially with fan fiction, like we said earlier, it's striking the extent to which, you know, what women are relating to is the way that homosexual male sexuality is portrayed by other women. They're relating to this female vision of, you know, what it means to be, have, you know, a romantic and sexual relationship um, that has very little to do with actual gay male sexuality. Mm. And I think for a lot of, so something that I've noticed in the time that I've been studying these communities is that there has been a huge surge of, heterosexual and often women who will even self-describe themselves as being very feminine, identifying as trans and identifying in particular as quote, gay trans guys, straight women. Right. Right. Um, and I think that a lot of this is a response to positive depictions of gay male sexuality on the one hand that are very appealing to girls and young women who are attracted to men and who are afraid or uncomfortable with um, the kinds of sexual dynamics and just the built-in inequalities in sex and reproduction between men and women. Mm -hmm. And that this is a way, it's like a safe way to explore the possibility of sexual involvement with men. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's only safe when it's on paper because the other thing that you see in these communities is that you see a lot of young women who are put, I think, at extra risk because of this form of identification that they've adopted. Um, so they will go out and put themselves in dangerous situations. They will be pretty easy prey for any man who is kind of unscrupulous enough to identify as being gay in order to sleep with a woman who wants to be with a gay man. And that these young women have also cut themselves off from a kind of honest evaluation of male-female sexual dynamics because they are deluding themselves that they're in a male-male relationship. And then they'll be like, I don't understand why, you know, like I saw a post today, which was like, I don't understand why he can't seem to find my testosterone dick, which is what they call like a clitoris. And it was like, this mm -hmm. is not <laughs> a new problem, <laughs> but, but it'll also funny, be with much yes. less funny things where it'll be like, you know, vulnerability to, sex to sexual assault and things like that. And they'll say that, you know, I feel particularly bad because this happened to me as a man. And it's like, this is like, this is a very this common female experience. As a man. It did not happen yeah. to you as a man. Okay. So you've got girls going on, say, Grindr. And right. sometimes I guess based on their photos, it's going to be obvious that they are female. Yeah. Sometimes it might not be. Um, do they have, have the experience of trying to hook up with gay men who, who, who aren't interested once they realize that they're female. Is that something they talk about? Yeah, that's definitely something that comes up a lot is that feeling rejected by gay men. And it's like, of course. Yeah, surprise, surprise. Right. 
and and not recognizing this as any kind of imposition on someone else's sexual orientation. Yeah. And so it's not as aggressive as it is on the other side where men who identify as women put pressure on lesbians, but it's definitely present. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, that's a, that's a more longstanding mm-hmm. source of tension where you have men who identify as women really inserting themselves into lesbian. Yeah. The lesbian dating scene. And you do have women who kind of go along. I mean, they might not actually... Well, this was, of course, the, co- the cotton ceiling, so-called, yes. which I think I think that term was coined quite a long time ago now, um, to say that women will sort of pretend that you're a woman, really, but then they won't want to have sex with you. Yeah, um, because they don't really they don't really believe it. Did they? Uh, and it's, it's like infamously, this sometimes um, provokes very um, angry and aggressive responses in some mm-hmm. trans-identified males. Do you have that? same degree of anger and aggression in the FTM space? I I mean, it's really hard to say. My sense is that it's not the same level of anger and aggression that mm. a male who has been thwarted sexually is going to be able to mobilize. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly, like, strong feelings of rejection and of having been wronged in that rejection. Yeah, I'm guessing that um, gay men generally less persuadable I would <laughs> yeah 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 than lesbians but there oh, seemed but there seemed to be yeah. plenty of straight men who are willing to pretend right so is that a phenomenon straight men going on to say grinder to pick up kind of pick up girls. vulnerable insecure girls who will sleep with someone who'll pretend they're a man that's really bleak yeah that seems to be a thing okay <laughs> new man-made horrors beyond beyond our comprehension yeah right I mean makes sense and the girls don't and the girls just are so deep in delusion that they don't realize what's going on yeah I mean they will they will talk about you know does he really see me as a man and you know kind of commiserate and exchange you know how you know ideas about how to tell if he really sees you as a man or if he doesn't can I ask a really um, unpleasant and explicit question? Yes. Are they having vaginal sex? Yes, a lot of them. Right. And they'll come on and say things like, uh, there, there seems to be a widespread misunderstanding that testosterone is an effective form of birth control. Oh, no. There also seems to be widespread denial that when you are dissociating very hard from your female body that you can still get pregnant. Right. So pregnancy scares are also a pretty common topic on these forums for straight women. Right. Yeah. At the risk of sounding like Helen Lovejoy, like where are the parents in this? Do they, do they talk? Do they, is, that, is that a source of discussion as well? I mean, I mm-hmm. assume parents, if they know about what's going on, are not pleased. Yeah. I mean, parents often come up as, often as barriers to getting the treatment that a young person wants. Um, they're always the parents who, you know, they don't understand, they're not capable of understanding. Um, yeah, and I mean, like many cults, there's this strong dis- there's this strong encouragement to disconnect yourself from friends and loved ones and who are not on board with what you're doing. The thing that's so sad, I mean, particularly when thinking about these these issues with um, real life sexual relationships, mm-hmm. is um, what they need is specifically like female centered help and advice. Yeah. Um, and the recognition that, you know, the problems you're describing are kind of as old, as old as the hills. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of us over here, like 51% of the population who could, who could, who could probably offer at the very least some like solidarity, Mm -hmm. but that's exactly what they won't allow themselves to hear. Yeah. I guess they're the most extreme manifestation of the. I've I've obviously written about it a lot that this problem where if you don't tell young women the truth about the differences between men and women, yeah, some of them will make really bad decisions. Yeah, and that they're the extreme example of like disconnection from older generations of women, and that the idea that they might have anything to tell you that's worth hearing, and the having sex like a man sort of principle oh, taken to right. incredibly extreme. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great point. <laughs> I hope you're right about that. 
<laughs> do you think that, that most of them, I mean, because do you remember that, that bit in The Simpsons where Lisa is reading a magazine called Unthreatening Boys? Um, I don't because I was not allowed to watch The Simpsons as a child. <laughs> well, <laughs> pro- I mean, probably the correct decision from your parents is actually <laughs> it's actually not not suitable for children at all. Um, it's a great like it's a great image because it it you know it speaks to something very true about teenage female sexuality, mm-hmm. where the, the sort of in- it's the Jonas Brothers kind of. Or, Lena, or, or a young Leonardo DiCaprio, whatever, mm-hmm. these kind of quite um, low-T young men who are um, a safe object of desire if you're, yeah. if you're young. And, like, rightly intimidated by, like, high-T male sexuality. Yeah. Um, and there's one school of thought that as long as they're not actually doing anything permanent and medical – it's not a bad thing in a super pornified cult. You know, if you have to choose basically between your 14 year old girl having, being like hypersexualized and having like really inappropriate sexual relationships or your 14 year old girl identifying as non-binary and reading like gay fan fiction, you'd choose the latter, I think, even if it's, even if she's probably going to be annoying about it because, <laughs> because she is at least safe and actually yeah. it can be a kind of, um, it can be a, a, a safe delaying tactic. Oh, I think it um, totally, it's, it's like a safe harbor where you get to yeah. say like, I don't want to have sex like that and I don't want to be seen like that. Right, right. And actually, I mean, in a funny kind of way, sometimes these girls, if they feel very um, misaligned with, the other girls in their peer group who maybe are choosing the hypersexualized route actually having an online space where they can meet like-minded girls is not a bad thing Mm -hmm. as long as they don't do risky permanent things like going on grinder or like chopping their breasts off yeah I think that there is there's definitely a crossover point between a kind of tedious but maybe weirdly protective youth subculture to like a very dangerous movement within medicine. And, um, and that really kind of gets into the second part of my, my research, which is about kind of gender affirming care versus exploratory care and how these, especially how clinicians who affirm their young patients understand what they're doing. And the things that they don't understand, I think that they don't understand where these kids are coming from. Um, but, but it has been a fascinating topic to look into, I think, um, because I've always been interested in how people get swept up in destructive movements or really how people get stri- swept up in anything. I mean, that hasn't really been my experience of um, the world, but it's, the last few years have been a real immersion in, you know, how does an ideological movement kind of fracture civic life and capture medicine and how does it, you know, break into and ransack our private lives? It's hard to think of a better example. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it, how there have been other instances of this kind of contagious psychiatric phenomenon, like multiple personality disorder. Yeah is a great example and quite similar. I'll say that when I was working, when I was volunteering on rape crisis lines, Mm -hmm. um, there were still some middle-aged women who would call up and present with multiple personality disorder Mm -hmm. because it was this thing that had been, I think it was the 80s, right, where it was sort of at its peak. And it was teenage girls who were most likely to, it was a very, very similar to the ROGD mm-hmm. kind of demographic. Um, maybe not so much with the autism, I don't know, but definitely in terms of having experienced sexual abuse and being sort of anxious misfit girls and so on. And, you know, the craze passed and also there was litigation against some of the clinicians involved. It wasn't as bad because no one did 
well, it didn't involve medicalization to the same extent. It was bad in the sense that sometimes there were false and terrible accusations yes. made that ruined people's lives. Um, but what what happened subsequently, I guess, is just that he sort of gradually dropped it mm-hmm. um, or maybe transitioned to some other kind of um, sort of expression of psychiatric distress. But they didn't all drop it. And mm-hmm. I and I and I thought I was a turf at the time. OK, talking to <laughs> these these um, women like this is what happens. There are some people who who don't drop it like the fashion it's it's not just a fashion for them it actually alters their lives permanently yeah and the fact that these women are still suffering from profound distress and still sort of relying on the world's kindness in terms of the kindness of strangers in terms of playing up the multiple personalities mm-hmm. thing I mean obviously there's a question about how much how conscious it is but anyway um I thought is this what it's going to be like in mm-hmm. 40 years time say with trans where you have all of these these middle-aged people who are really really damaged by something that was a passing fad more than a generation ago yeah I mean I've been struck by the parallels between multiple personalities and recovered memory and the satanic panic Mm. um the other population that was really drawn in I think like in the 1980s the average multiple personality patient and then in the 90s the average recovered memory patient it would be a woman who was actually like in her 30s and was having kind of these other problems yeah that they were a little bit older Mm -hmm. and that they were having these kinds of clear other problems of living you know that maybe that you know a difficult childhood maybe they were abused maybe they're in a really shitty maybe abusive relationship Mm -hmm. um and they're looking for a way to make sense of their distress and you know multiple personality was the template at that time or recovered memory was the template at that time and like gender dysphoria and the belief that you were born in the wrong body the belief that you have you know these terrible experiences that you can't remember and you didn't remember until you were you know six months into therapy at 35 is a terribly destabilizing belief Mm. and when you read even the things that, you know, the therapists who are working with these women themselves were writing, it's obvious that the therapy and the coming to believe that you have multiple personalities or coming to believe that you have recovered memories is itself making everything in these women's lives worse, very similar to trans. Hmm. And I think that we are starting to see women who are kind of in that same 30s, 40s, just you know maybe looking for a strategy to like get out of a a bad or disappointing marriage maybe struggling with the burdens of motherhood maybe struggling with the problem of getting older as a woman and that now that we're starting to see these women latching on to trans too that's interesting it is and and do you think it's rogd do you think it's still similar to rogd just with a different age group or do you think it's a whole other category i mean it's similar in that it is rapid Mm. But I would say, so I, I would say when you're looking at someone who is an adolescent who's going through a normal process of identity development and they're testing out different you know, ideas about who I could be and maybe they latch on to this pathological one for a while and you know, God hopes that they don't take it too far, you know, those are, those are people who are kind of in a very understandable phase of life and you have faith that they're going to grow out of it. And I think when you're looking at women who are in their 30s and 40s who are falling into a trans identity after being exposed to these ideas, um, that these are women where you have much less confidence that they're going to be okay in the future. The way that I think the women that you're describing who are, you know, it, this is going to be maybe a, either a persistent identification or that there's going to be a persistent underlying pathology. Yeah, and talk more about the um, the sort of um, how clinicians are have been responding to these patients. The sort of the other side of your research. What I want to talk about actually in the um, I'll just I'll just I'll just ask you to sort of introduce your work, and then um, in the extended bit of the episode, I want to talk about you going undercover. Okay, that sounds good. <laughs> had a recent very event, enticing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so go on, let set the scene. Sure. So the way that I've come to understand how gender-affirming clinicians see that the work that they do is that the clinicians, a 
patient will come in and say, I'm transgender, I want to transition. And this will precipitate a shift in responsibility on the part of the doctor from the actual patient who is sitting there in the exam room with them to the patient's transgender alter. So basically the doctor and the patient fall under the same spell. And then they begin to collude to bring the transgender alter to life. And the only way to do this is at the expense of the actually existing patient. So they mine the patient's body basically for like, you know, natural resources that you can use to construct this new identity. Mm. Um, quite literally. Quite, quite. Know, skin, skin from your arms. Yes, like quite literally. New, new penis and things like that, yeah. And this is the best way that I have of understanding how clinicians can cause almost unlimited harm to their patients while believing that they are heroes and saviors of these same patients. But if you are, if you look at a patient and you see her transgender alter, you are not seeing the clinical presentation that's there. If you look at a patient who's a, you know, a teenage girl, for example, and let's say that she has a history of self-harming, let's say she has an eating disorder. Um, let's say that she quite recently <laughs> fell down this, I, you know, this YouTube rabbit hole, for example, or this TikTok rabbit hole around trans identity. And now she's really, really sure this is what she wants. If you look at a patient and you can't see that and you instead see a teenage boy who needs chest masculinization, reconstructive surgery, and they really will call it reconstructive surgery, mm. you are not going to be able to, like, how could you possibly provide ethical care to the actual patient if you can't even see them? And this is the problem of gender affirming care from my perspective. Um, and I think one of the things that is so interesting about this area of medicine is that clinicians really see themselves as a vanguard and they have this special knowledge of transgender identities and the benefits of transition in the absence of evidence or in defiance of the evidence as the case may be. And that they understand themselves to be paying a price for this special knowledge, which is being misunderstood and persecuted in their own time. And that this kind of entitles people who I think are, for the most part, well-meaning to feel like they can lie to parents. They can lie to policymakers who are trying to regulate this area of care. They can lie to the media about what they do in order to protect it because they do not trust the public and they do not trust parents and they do not trust regulators to understand the value of what they're doing. And one of the other things that I have found the most interesting kind of about this, this area of medicine is the history of this area is that clinicians and researchers come up with these precious theories about, you know, the relationship between sex and gender identity, or, you know, how malleable someone's relationship to sexual stereotype, sexual expectations in their body is. And these are theories that clinicians refuse to discard, even as evident, you know, disconfirming evidence mounts. And so they will sacrifice ever more patients to these theories of, you know, humanity and sex and who we really are and identity. And probably the best example of this is the Dutch clinicians who have been real innovators, I guess we could say, in the area of transgender medicine. Um, the Dutch originated the idea of blocking puberty um, and then mm. spread this idea around the world. And for people who are relatively new to this subject, you might think, okay, well, that seems like a pretty radical step to go and, and block puberty. And the clinicians themselves are very clear that you know they have no idea what the long-term effects of this will be at the time that they started this. But you might expect that they decided to move to younger and younger patients because they saw the benefits of the care that they were providing to adult patients. And they would say, why would we deny this, you know, until a kid passes, you know, the arbitrary age of 18, like when we see these huge benefits for adults. And that actually wasn't the case at all. What really happened was the adult patients were not doing well after transition. They were not living up to their clinician's expectations. And because the problem could not be with the theory that the way to address this kind of distress is that you have to change the body, the explanation must be that clinicians didn't start early enough. Like this is why they moved on to children. This is why they moved things earlier and earlier. 
and you just see this kind of thing over and over again where there is every explanation that's offered for why patients don't do as well, why psychiatric hospitalizations go up, why suicide is pretty consistent across every stage of transition, why there's you know, all of these different adverse outcomes. And clinicians will entertain every explanation other than the theory that changing the body to address distress doesn't work. I mean, if nothing else, one thing to take from this history of the last, particularly the last couple of decades, mm-hmm. is how incredibly fallible humans are. Yeah. And whenever you hear arguments, um, not just from progressives, but you know, from libertarians or whatever, that the that that the the goal of any kind of political project ought to be to sort of give people as much choice as possible yeah. in their lives. I think if you seen what choices people make, I mean, <laughs> just because I mean, uh, uh, it's sort of, it should be unsurprising that teenage girls will are particularly prone to being swept up mm-hmm. in this kind of um, these kind of contagious ideologies. Mm-hmm. But it hasn't just been teenage girls, although they've probably suffered the most from this movement in terms of certainly in terms of the physical effects on their bodies and the, the, the boys as well. But you know, of the really young patients, we know they're disproportionately female. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also the clinicians, it's also journalists, it's also, you know, there's this enormous ecosystem of otherwise apparently sane and intelligent adults who have propped up something that is so obviously akin to multiple personalities or lobotomy or any of these other very sinister historical medical phenomena. Yeah, and yeah, my my confidence in like <laughs> human decision <laughs> shaken to its core. <laughs> yeah, it's really taken a hit for me too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that you're touching on, and again, like another really strong parallel with multiple personality, recovered memories, and the satanic panic, is clinicians, and to some extent, I mean, reporters and these other people that we're talking about get trapped in this kind of competitive dynamic of competitive credulity where Mm. it's like, okay, well, anyone can believe that like a child might who hits puberty might be distressed about puberty, but like, can you believe this really far out bonkers claim? Like how far are you willing to follow your patient? Like this is something that we saw in the multiple personality where, you know, patients went from manifesting in a therapeutic setting, you know, two alter personalities to like 16 and, or from reporting, you know, a kind of recovered memory of very routine and believable abuse that someone might suffer in the home to like being part of a satanic ritual with like infant sacrifice. Mm. And that competitive credulity when that kind of dynamic sets in and psychiatry seems particularly prone to it is just a, a disaster for patients because you need clinicians to assess patients and to evaluate the appropriateness of treatment and not to say, you know, my, my, my basis for seeing myself as a good person and a good clinician is that I will be believe whatever my patient says. And yet gender clinicians are quite open about this, that this is their orientation. You'd like to think, wouldn't you, that one day there there will be waves of contrition, but that it, that generally isn't what That's happens. That's generally not what happens. <laughs> no, especially no. not when there's been so much institutional buy-in. I think that mm. that makes it much more unlikely because, I mean, even the media organizations that we would need to be part of a public reckoning by reporting thoroughly on what happened and how it happened, like they're compromised too. Mm. They were part of this too. Mm. Yes, and people, again, people have an amazing capacity for self-deception and so a more likely outcome. I don't, I don't think that this is going to last yeah. in its current form, um, but a more likely outcome is that the enablers will just kind of lie to themselves and say, actually, I, was, yeah. I wasn't as involved as all that or I was sceptical all along or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, I think what they're going to say, and we can already kind of see it, is... Like take, for example, the redefinition of gender affirming care and that activists and clinicians are defining what gender affirming care constitutes ever more broadly. So it can be something like telling a girl that it's okay to wear a dress, it could be getting a haircut, it could be, you know, a woman in her 60s who's like dyeing her roots or taking like hormone replacement therapy. Like they're redefining it into this incredibly broad category. Mm. And 
that's a way right now to gloss over the controversial bits like cutting off teenage girls' breasts. Um, but in the future, that incredibly broad category will be helpful for the people who perpetrated this to be able to say, yes, I practice gender affirming care, but it always meant this totally uncontroversial thing, like telling a kid that it's okay to dress however they want. Yeah, handy. Yeah, very. <laughs> All right. Uh, okay. So as, as discussed in the extended bit, let's talk about some of your, um, let's, should, should we call it field work? Sure. <laughs> um, but for everyone else, um, where can they find uh, more of your work? Um, you can find me on Substack, elizamondegreen.substack.com. And I write for a couple of different outlets, but everything ends up there. Awesome. All right. And we'll, yeah, we'll link to your Substack when we, um, when we put the episode up. All right, Eliza, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for watching that episode of Men, Mother, Matriarch and for all of your support. It means an enormous amount for the growth of the show. If you want to hear bonus content, an extra 20, 30 minutes of conversation with the guest, maybe a little bit more personal, a little bit less filtered, then you can go to my Substack at louiseperry.substack.com where you can sign up for extended episodes and also bonus episodes. And you can also access our chat community. You can also support the show by subscribing on YouTube or subscribing wherever you get your podcasts and rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts is also really great for encouraging other people to give the show a try. Please also spread the word, tell people that you know who you think might like it to give it, give it a shot. Um, the word of mouth effect is really valuable. So we'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening, watching and supporting what we're doing. Mm -hmm.